G'day everyone, uh, my name's Sam, if we haven't met before. Uh, I'm an engineer by training, and so in the lead up to today, I've been thinking a bit about technology. And I've come to the conclusion that there is one piece of technology that says more about us as people in general than anything else we've been able to achieve. And that piece of technology is the snooze button on an alarm. Now I realize it might sound a little bit left of field, but judging from the laughter, maybe you know where I'm going with this already. I think if we think about the process leading up to the development of this button, it gives us a bit of insight into who we are. So obviously people have realized that in life, some things are more important than others. And we've realized at some stage, well, some things are so important that we can't really afford to forget about them. And actually, these things are so important, it's probably worth us spending some time to develop a device whose sole function is just to remind us of these really important things. And so that's what we did. As people, we spent all this time and money and engineering, and we built an alarm, and then right at the end, we stick this button on top with the ambiguous name, snooze. I mean, have we ever questioned that word, snooze? I mean, if there's any alarm historians in the audience, then you'll probably tell me it's got something to do with uh, us using alarms to wake up in the, um, in the morning. But this seems a little bit convenient to me. You, you know, I, I wonder if we use the word snooze because we don't want to fully acknowledge what the button represents. And I think if we were going to replace the word snooze with a phrase from the Australian vernacular, we could replace it with a simple phrase, yeah, nah. <laughs> it's, it's not the snooze button, it's the yeah, nah button. And what it shows us about you and me is that although we recognize there are really important things in life that we can't possibly afford to forget, more than anything, what we want is to retain the right to downgrade the importance of those things in hindsight. Because when push comes to shove in the moment, we know there's a very good chance that we simply won't feel like doing them anymore. I've been turning this idea over in my head and I think it can be helpful to think of the Bible like an alarm. It's a call to action. It, it, it gives us information about what it means to be human that raises the stakes, and it tells us of some really important things that we need to do. We need to make some important decisions. Now, the Bible starts off in a place of incredibly good news when it tells us what it means to be human, that we are made in the image of God. What a dignifying statement. We are made to have a relationship with Him, to actively participate in stewarding the world, and to reflect God in the way that we steward the world. But then the bad news comes in very quickly because we discover this sin problem, that we are willing to do things that are fundamentally out of line with the design that God has for us. This creates separation between us and God. We can't relate to Him anymore. And effectively, sin makes us less human. Think about that, because we are made to relate to God, to steward His world, and now our ability to do both of those things is compromised by our willingness to do things that God wouldn't ever do. And so this relationship is broken. And what's worse, we find out that there's actually nothing we can do in our own strength to get things back on track. There's no temporary amount of goodwill or effort that we can muster to repair that relationship with a perfect and holy God. Because sooner or later, no matter how hard we try, you and I always find ourselves reaching for the snooze button, for the ENR button. But when the situation seems the most dire, that's when God takes things into his own hands, and through Jesus, God becomes the perfect human. Through Jesus, God demonstrates how to be truly human by perfectly relating to God and perfectly reflecting God to the rest of the world 
And then Jesus, as the one perfect, sinless human, he dies for all of the corrupt humans to pay the price for sin once and for all and to close that gap between us and God. It's, it's, an incredible, it's an incredible moment when you think about it because in one brilliant maneuver, God has retained his responsibility to be just. If he's a good judge of the universe, then he has to punish evil. He has to. And yet he's somehow figured out a way to do that and still show us unprecedented mercy. And he's done it by taking the punishment on himself. And then he calls us to follow Jesus in this new way of being human Except this time, the, the whole effort is supported not by our feeble strength. And we're always going back to that snooze button. Instead, it's supported by God's power. And so that is the alarm. That's the call to action. It's telling us that there is something terribly wrong with us and with the world, but it's also telling us that there's something much better on offer here. And yet, Scripture also shows that sin is not out of the picture yet. It continues to be a daily part of our experience. And it's at this point that tension arises. Because we find out that being transformed into the picture of Jesus doesn't happen in a moment. It requires an ongoing process. And tension, tension is the key idea that I want to talk about today. I think the passage that we're going to see is about Jonah wrestling with tension as he finds himself confronted by what God is doing, what God is calling him to, and the way that he feels about that in the moment. Now, for us, tension can come through all different avenues in life. It might be somebody asking you for a perfectly harmless favor that you just really don't feel like doing. It might be someone getting a promotion or an opportunity that you badly wanted for yourself and you find yourself wrestling with the disappointment or the envy there. Maybe a loved one or a family member has betrayed or deeply wounded you in some way. It could be sickness, it could be doubt, causing us to question who God really is, what it means for him to be good. And in all of these situations, it is really hard to choose to forgive or to give, to show patience, to trust in God in the middle of hardship. And yet I'm convinced through scripture, through the testimony of people in this room, that tension is one of the key ways in which God chooses to grow us. Tension is a sign that we're moving away from brokenness and towards what Jesus has for us. So we're gonna jump into the passage in a moment, gonna look at Jonah wrestling with his tension in this place, look at some of the decisions he makes, some of the consequences of those decisions, and finally, look at God's response to Jonah. So let me pray for us before we kick off. Abba, I thank you that you are here with us this morning, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, and I pray that you would do that this morning, open our hearts and our minds to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So just to recap on what we saw last week, Uh, We had Jonah coughed up on the shore out of the belly of this great fish and he walks reluctantly into the city of Nineveh, preaches a very brief sermon and incredibly the entire city turns around. Heartfelt repentance, sackcloth and ashes, even the cows have sackcloth on them. They're doing everything they can to appease this God that they don't even really know. And at the end of chapter 3, we see God's response to this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So chapter 4 then shows us Jonah's response to this situation. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, 
and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So we see Nineveh turn in heartfelt repentance. God relents of the destruction that he had threatened. And then Jonah gets very, very upset. It's Jonah's anger that the passage kicks off with. And straight away, we see another example of the big language, the dramatic language that we've seen all the way through the book of Jonah. What's he say? It displeased Jonah exceedingly, exceedingly. I think we're meant to understand that this is a serious, uh, tumultuous, painful experience for Jonah. But more than this as well, it shows that emotion is really central to how Jonah is processing this whole situation. When we look at the Hebrew phrase that is used to describe Jonah's displeasure too, it gives us another window of insight into what's going on here because it carries connotations of somebody perceiving a situation as evil. You could almost rephrase this to be, it seemed like an evil thing to Jonah that God had shown mercy to Nineveh. And that's a very striking idea. I think it shows something of the role that pride often plays in the way that we process anger. I certainly know for myself when I consider the way that I have processed anger in the past, often I have this very particular idea of the way that things should have gone and things did not pan out that way and that's why I'm angry. Like I just had such a clear idea of how it should have been. And I think it's perfectly understandable for us to be confused and for us to hurt, and especially when situations are really tragic and, and dire. And yet when it comes to things that God is doing, I also think we need to be really careful about how we manage those emotions of anger towards God because it brings us to a place where we're very close to saying that we know more than God does. And there's a real, there's a real question of balance here. We're going to come back to this later on in the passage because Scripture certainly affirms that our God is big enough and merciful enough to meet us in the midst of our anger. And yet at the same time, there are big implications to how we respond to God when we find ourselves in that place of anger. So we're going to look at what Jonah does with his anger now. So he prays. Jonah says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. What is Jonah doing here? He's justifying his original decision to disobey and to rebel against God. That's a pretty remarkable tack to take when talking to the, the God of the universe. Like this is the God who knows every word on his lips before he even says it. And now he's trying to justify why he disobeyed God. Um, and yet, as much as we sort of go, like, what are you doing, Jonah? There are surely elements of familiarity here for us. And another reminder that Jonah provides us with an opportunity to check our own hearts in this place. I think an important note to make is that God has been deliberate in placing Jonah in this place of tension. He knew exactly how he was going to feel under these circumstances. And I think he is calling Jonah away from this place of pride and into a place of humility. He's calling Jonah to trust God. He's calling him to see things from God's perspective. 
And tragically, we see Jonah resisting in this moment. Fortunately, God shows incredible patience. Now, there are a few things that Jonah does get right in this prayer, and they're all about who God is. So if we read on, he says, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is a beautiful description of the truth about who God is. And we see passages very similar to this scattered throughout the Old Testament. One of the first times we see these attributes used in regards to God is when God himself announces himself to Moses in the book of Exodus. And it's fantastic. We could spend weeks unpacking any one of these attributes. I just want to look at four of them pretty briefly now and consider the implications. The first attribute is that God is gracious. And when we look at the use of this Hebrew term throughout the Old Testament, what we see, uh, it was, first of all, um, the word is used almost exclu- exclusively with regards to God. And second of all, we get a picture of a God who is inclined to show kindness, to relieve pain, to give strength to the weak. And the bottom line here is that the goodness and the kindness that we see God showing Nineveh and Jonah and you and I, it's not because any of us deserve it. It's because that's who God is. He's inclined to give these good gifts that we don't even deserve. And there's something very profound here that makes God's grace even more precious. It is that it is anchored in who he is and not in who we are. That means we have a certainty because we know that he remains the same, even though day to day, you know, we're having bad days or we're having good days, but God remains the same. The second attribute of God is his mercy, sometimes translated as compassion in this passage as well. And if God's grace is about him giving good gifts that we don't deserve, then I think his mercy is sort of about him withholding penalties that we do deserve. When we look at the use of this word throughout the Old Testament, we see a God who is reluctant to bring pain, a God who is reluctant to leave his people, even when they're outright rebelling against him, a God who is always ready to welcome his children back in kindness if they would only turn and repent and return to him. The final two attributes here are that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I think these are really interesting attributes. I, I wonder, even in the context of God introducing himself to Moses and the Israelites in this way, if one of the key things he is trying to do here is draw a very clear distinction between who he is and some of the broken human ideas that we have of God. So when you compare the God of the Bible to the picture of gods of Mesopotamia, where Abraham came from, or even ancient Greece, um, we're probably familiar with some of those characters from, from pop culture. The God of the Bible is strikingly different. These, these other so-called gods are, seem to be full of rage constantly. They're very angry, very violent. There's almost a continual power struggle always going on there. And by contrast, our God steps in and he says, I am slow to anger. It's as though he knows our, uh, our inclination to create this picture of an angry old man sitting on a cloud with a pocket full of lightning bolts. We were talking about this very recently, right? And, and we have this idea that maybe God is just looking for the slightest excuse to strike us down. And he's saying, no, that's wrong. That's fundamentally wrong. I am slow to anger. The final attribute 
abounding in steadfast love, I think continues in this vein. The Hebrew word uh, chesed is talking of kindness and mercy emerging out of love. And God wants us to know that he is steadfast in these regards. He is loyal, constant, faithful, consistent. And that he is abounding in his goodness as well. He doesn't get tired of being good. He doesn't get tired of showing us his goodness. And I think all of these attributes are intended to fill us with confidence when we approach God. And there's certainly, there is certainly a level of confidence on display with Jonah here. Uh, and sometimes we're scratching our heads thinking, how, how does he have the gall to speak to God in this way? And yet, I think God wants us to have that confidence. But the question of balance here comes in again. Because while we can be confident that God meets us in tension, that he is big enough to meet us while we wrestle with the big questions, it's so important that we don't hold God in contempt, that we don't show him consistent disrespect. Because even in this passage, as we see Nineveh spared, you look earlier in the Old Testament and we see cities like Sodom and Gomorrah who continually persisted in rebellion against God. And he eventually did bring very harsh judgment against those cities. So there is a real consequence for holding the God of the universe in contempt and showing continual disrespect there. And while God allows Jonah to continue in this passage, we see some very tragic consequences of him resisting God in this place of tension already taking place. They emerge in the final part of his prayer. And we read, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is a really heavy place for Jonah to land. And we see that his decision to double down on that choice of rebellion and to immerse himself in his own emotions has led him to a mindset of death. We, we need to take a step back to just appreciate how skewed this perspective is because at this point in time, Jonah is speaking to the author of life, the giver of life himself, the God who has gone to such incredible lengths to preserve Jonah's life. Think about what we've been reading in previous passages. And even now, God continues to invest in this relationship with Jonah, and Jonah just throws it all back at God with ingratitude. It's striking. And we compare him to the pagan sailors who feared for their lives and cried out to any God who would hear them. We compare uh, Jonah to the Ninevites who, who listened to the sermon, feared for their lives, and earnestly repented. Jonah here just doesn't seem to get the value of his life. He doesn't seem to get what a gift it is. And I wonder if it's connected to his twisted perspective on the gift giver at this stage as well. What I think we're seeing here is the power of emotion to twist our perspective. And I think we also ought to note that the stakes are high when we experience tension, when we find ourselves caught between what God is doing, what he's calling us to, and how we feel. We shouldn't, we shouldn't think lightly about reaching for the snooze button because it's, the stakes are high. Now in the final part of this passage, we see God's response to Jonah. And I love that the, the God who spoke the universe into being, who created the sea and the dry land, he gives such a simple response to this big rant from Jonah. He simply says, do you do well to be angry? 
after all the insult, after all the disrespect that Jonah has shown God, God continues to be concerned with Jonah's welfare. His grace and his mercy just overflows towards Jonah. And out of all the issues in Jonah's attitude and posture, all the different things that, that God could be correcting Jonah on at this point in time, isn't it interesting that God zeroes, zeroes in on Jonah's emotions at this point? Do you do well to be angry? And there's a very obvious answer. No, no, Jonah is not doing well by immersing himself in his own anger at this point. Again, he is in conversation with the God who made the universe, who is evidently good, who evidently wants relationship with him, who wants to partner with him to do incredible things in the world, who has already used him to bring about incredible turnaround in a city of thousands, seeing all of these lives turn to God. And Jonah's anger and emotion just blinds him to all of it. What a staggering loss. Tension can be an indication that we are missing out on something good that God has for us. Again, something to keep in mind when we're reaching for that snooze button. This tension is an indication that we might be missing out on something good that God has for us. As we wrap up now, I just really want us to be ready and to be expecting that we're going to face that experience of tension, probably on a daily basis. And we need to be ready not to double down, not to choose rebellion, not to choose to immerse ourselves in our own emotions because we see how that leads to a mindset of death. We see how that leads to us missing out. Instead, what we're invited to do is to bring our emotion to God, and even more importantly than that, to bring our hearts before Him, because He's not the God who's standing there saying, I see that you're thinking the wrong thing, and now I'm ready to destroy you. He's the one who says, I see that you're hurting. Bring it to me. Let me change your heart. Let me give you a new perspective. We're going to see in the final passage of Jonah next week that new perspective that God is endeavoring to draw Jonah into. <coughs> So to return to our original idea, I do think it's really helpful to think about the Bible as an alarm, as a call to action, because it tells us there's something terribly wrong about the world, about your heart, but there's also something much, much better on offer. We need a change. We, we have some important decisions to make. And this good news mixed with bad news leads to what often seems like a paradox at the heart of following Jesus. And it's misunderstood again and again by critics of Christianity because our culture see, increasingly asserts that the only correct way to relate to other people is just to affirm them. It's just all about words of affirmation. It's nice to know that God is love and Jesus was kind and, and we're, we're happy with that, but we fail to see that pure affirmation is not love at all. That's apathy. And even Jesus brought hard rebuke against those that he loved. That was an important part of his love for them. Now, there's a bit of a crazy example, and it's one of the last things that I wanna share, but just imagine that you had a very aggressive fungal infection and it was causing like big parts of your skin just to fall off. And so naturally you go to a doctor asking for help in this situation, you step in there, they look you up and down and sort of you know, size up the matter and, and then they just shrug their shoulders, smile at you and say, I think you're beautiful the way you are. What do you do in that situation? You get out of there and you get a new doctor because you probably don't have that long to live if all your skin is falling off. All the words of affirmation of that doctor, as, as much as that might come from a nice place in their heart, it's perfectly meaningless because it fails to take into account that there is a picture of good human health. And compared to that picture, 
you are not healthy and you need help to get healthy again. Jesus is the picture of good human health. He's the picture of perfect spiritual life. And he's also the help that is on offer for us to get healthy again. God demonstrates that time and again by inviting people like Jonah, like you and me into this place of tension. And when we feel that tension, the tension of knowing that we need to give or forgive or show kindness or patience or give something up in our lifestyle that the Bible clearly calls out as wrong. It's like the pain of removing a splinter. Don't avoid it. Lean into it because it's part of the process of finding true life. As James and Seb come back up again, I just want to give us some space just to think. Maybe it's a a time to ask yourself, maybe it's a time to ask God what the alarms in your life look like. What are the calls to action that you have been responding to? What does it look like for you to hit the snooze button in various different areas? And maybe you're someone who feels like you've never really responded to that main call to action of the Bible to put your trust in Jesus. Or maybe you know that you've been responding, but you've just been hitting the snooze button for so long that you don't even know what it would look like to stop and to break out of that cycle anymore. I just encourage you, there's people down the front and to the side here, we'd love to pray with you wherever you're at. And and I want to affirm again, this is a space where it is totally valid and totally okay to not have all the answers and to not have it all together. Because I don't think anyone here does have it all together. And one of the beautiful gifts of God is that we get to figure this out together in community. So finally, I just want to encourage us. The first piece of good news that we have in the Bible is that we are made in the image of God. That means every single person in this room, regardless of what you've done, where you've been, where you happen to be in your headspace this morning, you are eligible to start following Jesus today. That is open to you, and that is life-changingly good news. It requires action. It requires apologizing to God for this sin that has made it a gap between us. But it is life-changingly good news. The other thing that is 100% true is that every single person in this room absolutely needs God's life-changing power to transform us into the picture of Jesus. If those ideas create tension for you, I just want to encourage us to take it to God in prayer. Get into the scripture, speak with each other, speak with people who have been walking with God for years and and I think we'll really discover that there are new areas of life and truth that God wants to draw us into.